Welcome to the Spy Who Raised Me podcast. Conversations between a daughter and her father. Yes, you've guessed it. He was a spy. My name's Jane Craigie and I'm here with my dad, Ian Craigie. And we are talking about dad's time when he was Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. He was actually based in Jeddah between 1979 and 1980. We're going to start with a little bit of context to the region. So much that we're hearing about conflict in the Middle East stems back, as do many of these conflicts, many, many, many decades. And at the heart of it, back at the beginning of the 20th century, was the Ottoman and Arab conflict all over land. Steeped in this history is a, a man of myth and legend, legend and history, um, Lawrence of Arabia. But Dad, that seems like a fitting place to start. You, know, you learnt a lot about the desert and you were there. Tell me a little bit about Lawrence of Arabia and, and, and why the man has context to what we're talking about now. Yes, T.E. Lawrence uh, was an unusual person. He, he was very fond of wild places and Arabs in particular and uh, he decided that he would go to uh, Arabia and mix with and help the local Arab tribes in doing whatever they were doing and they had a conflict with uh, the Turkish the Turkish army which, uh, which he um, over a period of two or three years he joined in as as uh, as an active combatant finished up as being one of the commanders of the of the army that uh, that fought the um, the Turk the Turkish uh, troops and that fed into the first world war where uh, the allies had um, a plan to uh, secure access to the Bosphorus and through into the Black Sea so that there would be a connection with Russia who were uh, one of our ally, allies in the First World War. Now this was this was uh, a seminal um, happening in that terrible conflict in Gallipoli because uh, Gemal Ataturk who was who was the leader of the of the of the Turkish army uh, knew what was happening and he very quickly uh, set up a pincer motion that took him down into Gallipoli where the high ground overlooking the Bosra Straits um, were ideal for repulsing any invasion that came from, from uh, ships coming, coming into that area. So he he um, very quickly set up trenches on the high ground overlooking the straits, and uh, over a period of weeks, he um, he got his troops to dig trenches, secure the all the high ground, and then he just settled there and waited for something to happen, which it did. HMS Clyde, I think, was the first ship that tried to take take the Gallipoli Peninsula. But little did they know that the Turks were firmly ensconced in the trenches overlooking the straits. 
and when they tried to to land on the Gallipoli beaches uh, they were decimated by by rifle fire that that uh, killed so many people it was unbelievable and uh, their organization the allies organization of the of that incursion was not well handled it wasn't properly planned and one of the one of the uh, commanders who was who was deployed to um, to Suvla Bay which is quite close to to the trenches instead of uh, securing the land so that they could help repulse the, the Turks in the trenches he uh, decided that it would be much better to set up a control center uh, so that he could he could sit there and organize his troops unfortunately Gamal Ataturk had uh, other ideas and he um, managed over a short period of time after the invasion to move even more troops into the Gallipoli area so uh, it became a tragic episode in that particular uh, conquest and and it finished up with 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 thousands and thousands of troops uh, Australian New Zealand uh, forces were there very courageous people who lost so so many people and uh, the other allies uh, so that was uh, something that goes down in history as being poor planning and vision by by the politicians especially especially Churchill and against a leader in Ataturk who was a, a famous tactician and strategist yes Gamal Ataturk was, was was an incredible person he was he was single-minded he was different he 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 had this idea that that uh, Turkey, as it became, should be a, a secular state and should not follow uh, Islamic strict ex- Islamic rules and and so on. Which was very visionary for that time. Very beginning visionary. Of the 20th very century. visionary. And it's odd now that the uh, that modern Turkey has has gone away from that with Erdogan, and they they are now looking at at a, a much stricter. Islamic um, situation. So it, it, it's so relevant to today, isn't it? What's going on in that region? Um, one of the things we will cover in a in a future podcast. Um, anybody who listened to the first podcast would have heard me say just what a, an adventurer my my dad is, um, and and where he took us on holiday. And one of one of our holiday destinations we'll cover in another podcast was Gallipoli. And we used to go there and you could still find um, um, old guns and hand grenades and all sorts of things on, on the beaches. As children, we'd dig in the sand and find these things. But that's not for now. We'll, we'll come back to that in a future podcast. And Dad, at the end of the First World War, um, there, there was a huge task of splitting the various land areas uh, between the Allies and the French who were very interested in taking control, understandably, in that part of the Middle East. And, and that was really, you described earlier, that that was really the beginning of Sunni-Shia fracture. Um, so just to give you a little bit of context, uh, the Saudis were Sunni, um, the Iraqis also Sunni, Iran-Shia, the Syrians were Hashemites, and the Yemenis, the Houthi, were Shia. 
and that's the beginnings of, of a lot of the conflict that we're seeing today. And, and just to overlay that, so when, when the land masses were being split um, at, at the end of the First World War, in, in 1920, um, Syria was taken over as a, as a French colony, and out of that they carved Greater Lebanon. Cover that in another podcast, a, a recent visit to the Lebanon, but that you see the French presence still very much in Lebanon today. And the Allies were granted control of the Ottoman Empire, the old Ottoman Empire territories of Transjordan, which is now Jordan, Palestine, and, and also Iraq. So if we fast forward to 1979, and you landed in Saudi Arabia at a, at a pretty bad time because they were um, celebrating, they were practicing Ramadan in Saudi Arabia. So you turned up there um, with four other colleagues. So there was an officer in charge, a man called Sandy Gordon, who was from Keith. There was an Arab linguist called John Morton, who was a very intellectual man, and there were three of you that were there as instructors. Um, yourself, Bob Davidson from Cooper, and Jordan Heisman from Cheltenham. And, and the five of you were there um, at the behest of the British government to train the National Guard, who were mostly Bedouin, and many virtually illiterate Bedouin, um, to teach them to set up their own intelligence, which um, you'll go on to describe challenge given their lack of education background. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you did, so what you faced when you first arrived there back in 1979. Yes, it was an interesting uh, mission we were given because I don't think anyone had ever tried to teach Bedouin uh, Arabs how to indulge in uh, intercepts and surveillance but we could see the the need for it because because uh, Saudi Arabia uh, felt threatened on a number of uh, sides by the Yemenis by the um, Iranians and they had to with all the resources that they had the wealth that they had through through oil mainly uh, they had to try and and have a secure uh, area that they could indulge in what they do best, and that is um, finding and and uh, selling oil to the rest of the world. But the um, Bedouin soldiers that we had, uh, we um, on the first day we arrived there in Jeddah, 1979, we were introduced to them. They were a motley lot. They all wore Thobes, not not uniform. So describe what a, th a thobe is. A thobe is a, is a voluminous uh, white garment that uh, men wear in Arab countries. Uh, very loose fitting, uh, very cool to wear, uh, with um, pockets, large pockets either side. And we'll refer to that a little bit later. And uh, so there they were. Uh, sitting looking at us, I think there were 12, I can't remember exactly how many, uh, and we had to, through a, an interpreter, we had to we had to introduce ourselves and give them some idea of what our mission was, which wasn't easy uh, with people who had been brought up probably in the desert 
part of a nomadic group of people looking after camels and we were talking about all sorts of things like like uh, satellites like intercepting um, communications and so on but anyway they hung in there and uh, I guess over a period of time we did see some some uh, indication that they were absorbing what we were teaching but uh, as people they were they were extremely um, kind they were very hospitable uh, they used to invite uh, the four or five of us who were instructing there to join them in the desert at weekends and and meet their their um, uh, relatives who were camel held herders and that in itself was a was a tremendous privilege to be able to to uh, join a culture so different from our own background um, and uh, we from a point of view of, of getting close to to the people that we were teaching it it uh, it it was great but uh, the fact that they had Ramadan and and periods like that where they had to switch off they would arrive in the morning after a night of fasting and uh, they would they would curl up underneath the desks and and go to sleep and then sit up for a while and then fall asleep again so it was quite quite chaotic the whole thing and um, we discovered in Jeddah it was Jeddah is a very it's a soulless place it's it's all concrete buildings and not many people in the streets except for Yemenis who, who were the poor people that um, swept up and collected rubbish and so on. There were always two or three Yemenis scuttling about uh, outside, but but very few uh, Saudis because they were in cars with uh, smoke glass windows and they were swishing around the the, the city of Jeddah. Um, but um, getting back to the, the students, we had one occasion in 1979. Um, one morning we were doing what we were trying to do yeah, that is teach them something I think by that time we were we were uh, covering uh, satellites just to give them some concept of uh, what the, what manner of uh, communication might might have to be um, looked at in the future but uh, all of a sudden one of the um, one of the group came up and said, oh, excuse me, we have to go, we have to go. No explanation, they just all um, walked out, disappeared. And we thought, what is happening? So we spoke to the interpreter and said, can you tell us what is happening? I mean, are they coming back? Is this the end of the, the um, story or what? And over a period of uh, two or three days, news began to... Uh, percolate through the, the media that the um, mosque, the Masjid al-Haram in Mecca had been taken over by militants. Now at that time there were a lot of militants protesting against the Saudi government because of the policies of westernization and uh, the students, Jandis as, as they were called, uh, were whisked off to help in evicting the the uh, militants who had taken over the mosque, so 
they uh, we we got new, no news and there was very little news uh, as is quite common in uh, Saudi Arabia of what was happening and and what the militants were doing and what the Saudi forces were doing but after about five days all the students arrived back in the classroom and they had pockets bulging with cash absolutely <laughs> spilling out so where had they got that cash they got that cash from the from the, the government uh, through their 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 army um, contact and so on and it was like often happened in Saudi Arabia people were were given large amounts of money to keep their mouths shut to to comply with the with the very strict Saudi um, Saudi laws that they had, uh, very secretive and 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 not open to the to the outside world. So they there they were, pockets stuffed full of notes, uh, and they sat down. And when we when we tried to find out what uh, what the money was all about, they looked very sort of shamefaced. But we didn't really discover until afterwards when the interpreter said, "Oh yes, that's common commonplace when." when carrying out uh, uh, missions like that. But in any event, the, the um, mosque eventually, with the help of uh, French and Pakistani um, commandos, uh, reclaimed the mosque and there were a lot of deaths among the militants. I think, I think 67 deaths were, were um, posted up as having been the, the number of casualties, but we suspected it, that it was uh, far more than that. And you, you, as you said earlier, you spent a lot of time with the Bedouin. You got to know them well. You met their relatives, camel herders, and, and you spent time out with them in the desert, traveling with them in the desert, living with them in their shigs, which were their uh, tents. And you were saying that they were made out of goat hair. Um, and, and you were also telling me about goats being an important part of their culture, but also their food. And can you describe what a typical weekend was like out with kind, hospitable, embracing people in the desert? Yeah, it was it was a great experience because uh, we were in Jeddah, which is which is on the Red Sea coast, and the um, deserts that that their relatives worked in as nomads. Uh, we're about 100, 150 kilometres away, so they used to roll up on a Friday uh, with this huge uh, Chevrolet, an American car, and uh, Mohammed, who was the virtual leader of the of the group of uh, soldiers we were teaching, he would drive, and he always stuck a tape in his uh, in the cassette recorder, and it was more often than not uh, pop songs that, that we got and uh, so we would there we would go in 40 degrees up over Taif and Taif in itself was a very interesting place because at that time 1979 they were still performing public um, uh, beheadings and cutting off hands and so on and as it happened as we passed uh, uh, through Taif, uh, Mohammed um, said, "Oh, these people are going to the um, 
to the beheading to the and and they apparently had a square an open area where they performed these and uh, thieves had their hands cut off one one hand cut off and for more serious um uh, indiscretions they were beheaded so that was sort of that was was quite an event i guess in that society at that time to go and look to see who was having a head mm. chopped off and it was it was an incredible um it was an incredible thing to be happening in a in a place where people were so so hospitable and and so kind anyway we would set off into the desert and drive and drive and drive until until uh, we found the the nomads and there might be 20 or 30 or 40 camels there and as jane said the black the black shig which is uh which is such a fa- fascinating uh, tent structure big uh, very heavy because the goat's hair that was used to to weave it was was fantastic and you you would sit in there even when it was raining and you would feel that nothing coming through it was just incredible but uh, the uh, camel herders would come up and and uh, and they would milk a camel they'd milk a camel and offer all the guests a drink of fresh camel milk and it was it was superb <laughs> so the main diet for these nomads would have been dates and um, camel milk and the occasional the occasional hair or, or something but and goat and goat yeah and the goat the goat was another uh, <coughs> another story because it, it, it was it, it, it was uh, such an interesting the first time we went such an interesting weekend because when we got there and had said hello to the the camel herders and had a drink of uh, of camel milk they then dug a hole in the sand with, and put a, an empty an empty oil uh, can or an oil drum into the hole and and set a fire in the base of this this drum and uh, over a period of two or three hours they fed the fire fed the fire until there was a nice even layer of white ash in the bottom of the drum and then they put some green uh, green twigs on top and then put the put the goat which they had butchered and dismembered on top of the green twigs and put the lid on and covered it with with uh, with goat dung and sand and then they left it for uh, a number of hours and eventually Later in the day, they opened this up, and it was absolutely gorgeous. All these, all these, um, and the smell of the the the, um, the goat was was fantastic. And and the um, tradition was that they cut a little bit of cheek from the goat and presented that to the to the guests. So you had to chew this this uh, slightly hairy piece of piece of goat and swallow it <laughs> and then you were one of the clan I guess but no very interesting uh, very interesting experience and one that brought everyone I think all our group closer to to uh, the Arab way of, way of mind and it's so totally different to our own background that, that it gave us some 
insight into the culture and and the politics and the geopolitics and, and so on. Very, very interesting. And you learnt some Arabic as well while you were there, didn't mm-hmm. you? We went to the to the American school of uh, uh, where they taught Arabic and and did uh, did some some lessons. It wasn't wholly successful because because um, you know Arabic is a very complex language and uh, we found the pronunciation and so on. The fact that we weren't actually using Arabic that much uh, in in the workplace teaching that uh, we didn't really um, do as well as we should have done but but so interesting. Can you remember any? Can you tell us a little bit of Arabic? Arabic? Arabic. <laughs> well we, we used to pick up, we used to, they had, they had uh, Terms they had words that they used for greeting, and and you would you would arrive and they would say kefalik, which is how are you kefalik, and everyone would shake hands with each other, going around saying kef kef kefalik kef you know, and you could you, this might take two or three minutes by the time everyone had uh, had uh, got round, you know, the neighbours and and. Uh, what was the other words they used to use? Haram was was often used because haram is forbidden. So you can imagine in a in a society such as such as uh, existed in uh, Saudi Arabia, a lot of things were haram. And so if you you know if you did something or you said something, immediately you get something haram. You know, in a in a soft kind of voice. No, you can't do that. You can't say that. But but. Um, Again, coming back after after all the farewells and 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 that coming away from the you know the weekend, we would we would all filter back towards uh, Jeddah. And I remember one uh, instance where they had a friend who lived just outside of Taif. So they said we'll go and see see this friend of ours. So we turned up and uh, they had. Uh, Obviously, they had forewarning that we were coming to to visit them. So we came we came into this house and uh, warmly greeted. And um, I said to Muhammad, who was who was more or less the leader of the the group, uh, "Is there a toilet?" Um, he said yes, and he pointed to the toilet. So I went in to the toilet and I was surprised to see that it had modern fittings. The plumbing was all there. There was a, there was a bowl to sit on. There was a cistern of, of uh, where the water should have been and it was all there. So I had a pee and went to flush the, the toilet and the whole damn thing collapsed. It <laughs> <laughs> was no water. It was all there for show, and <laughs> and the cistern landed at my feet. And of course, uh, my Arab friends were only a few feet away, sitting in 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 the room next. So I felt exceedingly embarrassed <laughs> when I walked when I walked back. And Mohammed looked at me and smiled as much as said, "Well, you know." And and one of the people that you met, um, and we'll touch on this in a minute, but um, linked to why you were there, but one of the people that you met was the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. 
and um, you told me a story about the vehicle that he used. Yeah, it was. They had they had very uh, unusual um, pursuits because of the desert, because of the the nature of the country they lived in, mostly sand and and volcanic rocks. And he he um, loved hunting, and he he hunted with hawk, which is traditional in, uh, in Saudi and Saudi Arabia, back throughout the Middle East. Uh, and on this occasion, he he turned up, and we went to uh, observe, see what how it was done. And um, he sat in a on a an adapted seat in the middle of the of the Range Rover. It was a big, opulent-looking Range Rover. And uh, someone pressed a button, and he was elevated some feet above the where he would normally sit in, in the Range Rover. And from that vantage point, you could look around, spot any hairs that may have, may have uh, blown the cover. And uh, then he would set the, the hawk to kill him. He loved that sport. You could see that it was his passion. And and that takes me on to the the strategic uh, and relational uh, importance of Saudi Arabia to the British government. It was obviously uh, 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 to do with power, to do with um, the British having some control, stroke strong relationship with the Saudi leadership, um, and and uh, against you know, a, a, a volatile place, a volatile area of the world. And how do you think the relationship came about between the British government and the Saudis for you to be there training them in intelligence techniques? Well, traditionally, I mean, like, like is now the case, oil and energy was a very big issue with, with all all countries. For those countries who didn't have their own supply of oil, of course, it was a, an incredibly strategic thing to be able to buy a supply of oil, but, and that obviously gave people who had the oil wells great wealth and also great power. And uh, in Britain's uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia, there was always a, a balance between the need for us to to get oil for the various things that that required the use of oil, and our support of them because uh, the Saudis are very good business people, and and they wouldn't give things away. So the equation was, we thought, and I th I'm sure it's true, that supplying arms, for example, to Saudi Arabia uh, was one way of, of, of redressing the balance, even though we did uh, pay a lot for the oil. But that unfortunately, uh, the Middle East being such a complex area, so many political and economic factors and geographical, that, um, that when the Saudis started uh, attacking the Houthis and Yemen, and Yemen has always been a, a sensitive area uh, for Saudi Arabia because of course they're Sunni and the, the majority of uh, Muslims in Yemen are, are Shia and they've always felt threatened by them but uh, the equation now of, of Britain and other 
suppliers of arms like America uh, and Europe to Saudi Arabia uh, who are who attack the Houthis and there have been so so many uh, deaths in, in Yemen as a result of that it is a very very contentious uh, point in modern politics and one that hasn't been resolved and doesn't look as if it will be resolved no, and you were saying when we were doing some, um, we were having a conversation before we started recording, that uh, part of your purpose there. So yes, you were there to train the national guard in intelligence techniques, um, but part of the the wider goal was to look at ways to secure the border between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. What exactly was that plan? Well, the plan was that they. The Saudi Arabian government was uh, were trying to establish some sort of security system that would make them feel that they were safe from any incursions from from the Yemenis and also the Iranians, but but mainly the Yemenis at this point in time. And of course, the border between uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the Yemen extends for. 1100 miles um, it's a huge it's a huge border it's in a desert area uh, so there aren't apart from the fact that it's a desert it there are no natural um, barriers like the Himalayas or, or, or great mountains or or deep rivers so so in that sense the Saudis are quite vulnerable from uh, incursions across that border so one of our missions was to was to try to give them the means by which they could they could survey the the border and um, make sure that if there were incursions they would be um, they, they would be uh, spotted by the Saudis and they could they could do whatever they had to do to safeguard their security but one of the the ideas they came up with was was um, burying um, system that allowed allowed any movement of vehicles or, or or troops across the border to be identified by vibrations in the in the ground. And when we looked at it, we thought we were not experts, but uh, we thought, well, one thousand one hundred uh, miles of of, of uh, of cable um, buried in the ground doesn't sound a feasible way of, of, of yeah. so and so the other thing we tried which which was uh, not very successful was testing a VHF uh, surveillance uh, cabin that was made specifically for for uh, the purpose of, of monitoring um, any incursion that, that that happened where VHF um, radios were being used. So we sat for many, we sat for uh, many long hours in the heat of the desert. My God, it was hot. Uh, listening for uh, for signals that, that may or may not have been there, but that was that was very expensive um, system that didn't work. And and you were you were also saying I mean the, the the net result of the year there was not hugely successful because of the uneducated nature of the Bedouin and this the the, the trying to find some mechanism 
to be able to monitor that border for movements of people or vehicles. Um, but one of the other interesting things you gave me earlier is that um, you you had some competitors for the favours of the Saudis, which were the Chinese, and they were not too happy about the Brits being there. Expand a little bit on that for us. Yeah, that was that was uh, quite amusing because when we got there, um, like I say, Jeddah was a very boring place. It was all concrete houses and no culture. Uh, office blocks and not many people around so we used to at coffee break in the morning we'd sit in the balcony and look out uh, at a very un- an interesting landscape except that the offices opposite us on the other side of the road always seemed to be very interested in what we were doing and uh, the, they would sit on the balcony and and uh, look across and then one or two or three people would come out, they would chat, they'd go back in again. And it wasn't until some months later that we realised that the Saudis had also brought in a group of Chinese uh, technicians, experts, we guessed, we assumed, uh, in surveillance me- uh, methods. And uh, it sort of gave us quite a bit of background on what the Saudis were trying to do and they're adept at that. I mean they, they play off one country against another. They've been doing it uh, very skill, skillfully for a long time. Just why the balance of power, the balance of, of, of uh, diplomacy that they have between America and Britain and other countries that supply them with various things is is has has uh, endured for such a long period of time without any repercussions so far. And fast forward, here we are in 2020, Mm. and much of what you've described is still a very, very live, if not more volatile, Mm. um, debate. And and I know that we'll pick up on more of that in in the coming podcasts. For sure. And the interesting thing about the the Saudi... um, social scene is we we picked that up even in 1979 is that there's a huge amount of discontent among among saudi people because on the one hand they were subjected to a very a very strict form of uh, uh, islam uh, which forbade them from from drinking which forbade them from various things, being in nightclubs and so on. But during the time, even 1979, uh, we saw photographs that the, some of the soldiers that we were teaching had showing showing the prince and even the king at one stage sitting in a, a nightclub in France with a, with a bottle of wine in front of them. And of course, this, this dichotomy of, of, uh, of behavior that, that is is apparent in countries like that can only can only lead to tension and uh, ill feeling and at some some stage unrest in the in the countries that, that have that. Yeah, and we're seeing some signs of change in Saudi Arabia. Women can now drive, and mm. it's, it's very it's a it's always been a very oppressive regime, um, and but, and one that has um, caused its citizens a, a lot of heartache. Very much so. And now, now they're they're erecting on the Red Sea coast, not far from Jeddah. They've um, started 
building a complex for tourists because the Red Sea is, is an incredible sea for snorkeling and mm. diving and so on. Uh, and they're well, they're well ahead. They have to because there's some point in the future where the supply of oil will disappear and, and they have no no real means of, of filling filling the gap. I mean, they can't, no agriculture to talk of, uh, not much industry to talk of. So tourism seems seems the sensible thing to do. And with with all of that, you know, oil diminishing, the, mm. their power shifts as well exactly. as a result. So mm. that that volatility in the Middle East is is not going to change. And and we'll touch on some other country in future podcasts. Um, one one last thing to mention is quite amusing. So one of the things that happened while Dad was in Jeddah, um, one of the Bedouin. The Bedouins that he was teaching um, decided that he wanted to uh, marry me, and he'd never met me, but he wanted to marry me. And how many how many camels was he going to trade for me? Yeah, he was he was offering twelve camels <laughs> if if he could marry Jane. Uh, the, Jane was very popular because the photographs I had, she had long blonde hair and uh, and so on. And although you were how old at 30? the time? Thir- thirty. Thirteen. Yeah. Thirteen. Thirteen. Thirteen, yeah. rather. And uh, yes, and he he would, uh, and I would say, you're not serious, are you, Rabbi? Uh, yeah, I'm serious. And I'm serious. So we never, <laughs> we never did further <laughs> 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 the sight of. Well, <laughs> thank you for loving me enough not to send me to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I don't think I could have survived in that oppressive regime. Oh my God! You can imagine entering a society like that. that was so strict. Uh, you know, for a for a young, and of course they they married quite young in in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Not not sure if thirteen. Yeah, I guess I guess uh, they would have done. So it would well, have been. Well, thank you for not sending. Good job, I was well behaved, and you didn't want to send me to the other side of the world. Absolutely, and it's not as if you can call twelve camel, camels a disposable <laughs> asset. <laughs> asset. <laughs> yeah, what would you have done with twelve, well, 12 camels, camels. In, in in Taunton? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah. thank you again, Dad. Um, we're going to go off and make some um, some lunch in a minute. And, and the next podcast, um, I'm hoping, will be really, really interesting. Um, and it, it is going to take us actually physically back to somewhere that we lived. So um, my dad spent some time uh, based in New Delhi in India um, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, when I was very young. And my sister Emma was born there. And so we're on the 14th of February 2020 we're heading back to Delhi for a week to re- retrace old old stomping grounds and the High Commissioner very kindly said that they'll welcome back to have a tour of the High Commission in, in New Delhi. So we're going to be recording some podcasts from India um, when the three of us go back to retrace our steps. So mm, thank you very much. Look forward to it. Yeah, thank me you. too. Thank you, Dad.